Well, thank you for that, that uh, last reading, because that really does sum up where I'm going. Where are you? Thank you. That's actually where we're going in this little message. Um, right, first, first of all, um, I could bring this morning's message in about three or four minutes. So you're going to say, why don't you then, aren't you? <laughs> and the answer is because I'm going to give you about 40 minutes of background. There you are. So that's the reason. And I'm in good company in this. Um, I'm going to refer us, first of all, to Ecclesiastes. And there's a wonderful um, verse in Ecclesiastes that says, at the very start of the book, there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Now, the writer was actually, when he wrote this, was actually lamenting and saying, everything's boring. It's all bad news. Nothing new. But I'm going to take a liberty and turn that round and say, in actual fact, he's true in what he says. There is nothing new under the earth. There is no problem that we haven't faced, that God hasn't faced before. There is no crisis in the world today that God hasn't been through before. God has an answer. So as I go through this morning's little background talk before we get to the word, um, I want you to bear that in mind. There is no problem. Because God has been there before. And he has an answer. And many of our prayers, what we're really doing is encouraging ourselves, not to get God to change his mind, but to get us to fall in line with God's will and to wait to see his solution. That's what we're really praying to do. Now, um, I understand that John's going on holiday or been on holiday um, because he gave us this wonderful uh, idea that we should be looking at what we take with us on holiday, isn't it? There we are. What we pack when we go away. Um, it's wonderful when you're packing, but things have got simpler and simpler. I now have a very simple process before I go through a door and close it, and I ask myself two questions. Have you got your passport? Have you got any money? The rest I can cope with. Today, all the tickets are e-tickets, and you turn up and whatever else. If you forget one of those two, you're in trouble, unless you're going to Cornwall. Um, you don't need a passport yet, but anyway. So you take two things with you, two essential things. And John asked me to look at reading the Bible. Now, it goes without saying for a Christian, that is one of the essential things. So I'm not going to unpack any more than that. I am going to look, though, at what it means to read the Bible. Okay. And I'm going to ask you to, uh, to divide your Bible knowledge into two areas, and I'm going to challenge you. One of those areas will be present, but you wish there was more. And the other area, I humbly suspect, is woefully lacking. And I'm going to encourage you to fill it in rapidly. One of those questions, of course, is what the Bible says. How many of you here know what the Textus Recepticus is? Shame on the lot of you. The important thing, to know what the Bible says, yes, but what is the Bible? Where did it come from? How was it written? How did it get to us? Can we believe it? Should we trust it? These are important questions. 
To give you a simple analogy, I'm taking one of our very old cars to France in a couple of weeks' time. I put it through the garage first, and I made sure it was okay and going to be trustworthy. If you are believing the Bible, let me ask you some questions. Why? Have you looked at why? How did you get the Bible? Where did it come from? These are really important things to know. And if you get this and understand even a basic bit of knowledge here, it saves a lot of error later on. Because there are different groups out there um, presenting the Bible in very, very wrong ways. I mean, let's take the group on one end of the extreme uh, that says it's just a bunch of old manuscripts. Uh, read it if you want to. It's not very reliable. And if you want to change it, we will. Oh, look, we've dug up the gospel of who flung doing. Why don't we put that in the gospel now and have that part of the Bible? Because it suits my belief. And when you look at that group, what they basically say is they're trying to turn the Bible into what they want it to say. Then, and this is where I'm going to get careful and offend anybody now. I probably am this morning, but I'll get slung out. There's another group who have fallen into the complete opposite but same error. They have made the Bible almost an idol. They don't believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's Father, Son, and Holy Bible. The Bible is totally inerrant. There is no problems with it. It is one book. It was given to us by God in a big casket that came down with a seal on it. Rubbish. It did not. The Bible is full of errors. You don't like that? Look at it. There's lots of contradictions in it. There's millions and millions of versions. Nobody agrees as to what the Bible is. Different denominations have different takes. You need to understand this. But the truth that it preaches does not change. With all that statement, every single teaching in the Bible stands true in every version. And that's the difference. The difference between having the Bible as a book, which is what the Quran is to the, to the um, Muslim people, and to see the Bible as a container of God's truth. Right? That truth does not change. Even today's, as a modern academic today, who's trying to really attack the Bible, his name's Bart Erdman, he used to be an evangelical, he's attacked the Gospel of John, etc., 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 Even he has to admit, with all the errors that he points out, not one of them changes the teachings of the Bible that we know. So it's it's an error to say there are no differences in the Bible, because people will point them out to you, and then you look pretty silly. But it's just as silly to say none of it can be trusted. The Bible is a receptacle that carries God's truth. And you need to know how you got it and where it came from in order to fully understand it and trust it. It's the truth that we trust. Now, having said that, let's look at a few little things which I find a little amusing and they really make me very cheerful and happy. Um, I'm a little bit like uh, a French football supporter before the uh, World Cup. I'm sure we're going to win, but I'm not like that. I'm absolutely certain we're going to win. 
Okay, I know the word of God will stand the test of time. And so when I come to look at this, I can feel really encouraged because I know um, there's nothing new under the earth, as it says in Ecclesiastes. All the problems we have today, God's been there before and he answered them and he will again. And I know the word of God will stand true from now until Jesus comes again. I don't care which version you pick, which Greek text you pick, whether you like the Codex Sinai or you want the Textus Recepticus or you want the modern Nestle, it doesn't matter. They all preach the same thing. That's the important thing. Don't get caught into which version is this and which version is that. And should we have this ending of Mark or should we have that ending of Mark? Okay, that's for the academics. It's good stuff, but it's for the academics. What matters is the truth. The basic truth that comes out of the Bible is true, has been reliable, has not changed. I'd love to talk a little bit about old bits that get dug up because every time we dig up a new bit... Oh, all the liberals run around saying, oh, here's proof, the Bible. Oh, no, it's still supporting it. And so it goes on. Two sor- um, there have been two great sources of old texts in the last 500 years, which have given us the Bible back, really. One is digging it up in the desert, and the other one is finding it in old libraries. And we keep finding old bits in old libraries. And even just recently, a very, very ancient bit of Mark was found in an old library somewhere. And every time it comes back... It supports the doctrinal truth of the Bible. So you can have confidence in it, but it's good to know how it comes from. Right. I suspect if God allows history to carry on any longer, there will be four major events in world history that have shaped the whole of human civilization. We're going to look at those four things this morning. Without them, we wouldn't be where we are. With them, they've changed everything you know and everything you do. And they're linked to the word of God. The first one, and you put your hand up when you know what I'm talking about. We'll play it as sort of game, okay? The first one appeared um, in, in, in its wholeness 3,500 years before Jesus in Mesopotamia, about the time of Abraham, started to appear. It was fully formed and running well at the time of Moses. The Bible does not record it existing up until the time of Moses. But after the time of Moses, it records it as existing. What am I talking about? The law, nearly, if you have the law, what do you have to do? Write it down. Writing. Writing. Yes. And here is, um, now you can look at this, you can start reading into it if you like, but it is a factual truth, okay, that the time that God gave the law to Moses coincides exactly with the time of the invention of writing. Right? Before that, no writing, no law. We have the verbal tradition in Abraham, but the, the writing, um, I'll read from the internet here, the cuneiform script created in Mesopotamia, present-day Iraq, around about 3,200 BC, was the first. It is the only writing system which can be traced to its earliest prehistoric origins, and it goes on. Well, Mesopotamia, that was where Abraham came from, in Ur. 
In what time? Oh, look, the same time, 3500 BC. Oh, so writing started at round about the same time as Abraham. And we got this story in Genesis, and then we get to um, Moses, and what is Moses, what happens on, on Mount Sinai? The Ten Commandments are given down, and here comes the first time. God wrote it, and they knew what it was. And archaeologically, we know full well that the Egyptian cuneiform script had been running for a long time by then. But we see the development of writing happening at the same time as the revelation of the word of God. Not, not linked, not invented by Christians or Jews, but by the Jews or anybody, but they were happened and God took one and used it for the um, production of the word of God. Now you could say, well, of course, one follows the others. I'm not trying to make any linking here. I'm just observing that they happened together. So the coming of writing gives you the written word of God. What happens next? Okay, so for the next 1,500 years... We have scrolls, long things written out on one side, scrolls. Now, we don't overlook this as a piece of technology. A scroll that long ago was as complex to them as this is to us. They had to make the paper. They had to make it last. They had to get the ink. It was a major and expensive undertaking. So scrolls were very valuable and very time-consuming to produce. But nevertheless, for up until 1,500 years, we have scrolls. So as the word of God develops, as we have more and more um, writings written down, and the word of God becoming uh, more and more recognizable, what we might see, they're all on scrolls. And everything that, um, every old scripture is, is in these scroll forms. Right up until... The first century AD. Is that familiar? Completely independent change in technology happened at the first century AD. Shout out when you think you know what I'm talking about. There are records of Julius Caesar doing this. It was called the Pugilaris Membrane in Latin, called the Codex. To everybody else, Codex means trunk of tree, because they learned to squash their manuscripts between two pieces of wood and invented the Codex, which you would know as a book. Codex is just a fancy academic word for book. If you want to sound clever, talk about this codex this and the codex that. Just book. Okay? What the advantage of the book was amazing. It was smaller. It was cheaper because you use smaller bits of manuscript. It lasted longer because it was squashed between two bits of trunk or tree or whatever. And the book came into being. About a thousand, about one, about the first century, um, clear records of the Romans using them. Um, wow, what else happened then, completely separate at this time in the first century? Well, you all know what happened then, didn't you? We, people started writing the New Testament. And there suddenly becomes a change. Now there's another need. The first need was writing to write down what God's revelation is. 
Now we have to disseminate it. Now there's new writing, but it needs to get out quicker and faster. Um, the evidence is that by the four, five hundreds, um, no one was using scrolls at all. They'd all gone. Uh, everybody was using books or codex. Now remember, it's still handwritten. You're talking about handwritten parchments, so they're still expensive. They're still difficult to produce. There's not many of them, but they're a lot, lot faster and easier than scripts. But this is an interesting statistic. Um, an academic who I will quote in a minute, who was on the internet, um, has said, uh, and given records of this, that at the turn of the first, second century, 20% of all Greek ancient manuscripts were now in codex form. So they're moving slowly to books. But 60 to 70% of Christian writings are in codex form. So the Christians grabbed it quick. And the Christians grabbed the codex. And so hence, when we look at all these old, very old scraps of stuff which we keep digging up in libraries, they're in codex form. The, 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 the original, oldest um, manuscripts we've got of the New Testament are all codex. So, we can see a technological change which changed the world. If writing changed the world, the invention of the codex certainly changed the world because the Christian gospel was carried out to the world via the codex. The original scriptures there in codex form. And I see here uh, God's hand at work that there was a new need, the distribution of God's work, Word, and the answer was the Codex. So your Bible that you've got there came through this, this way. So we've now got the Codex going out, and we've got the Codex going all over the world. And if you know your, your history, you look at your medieval history, you know that there were lots of um, monasteries all over the place with people sitting there writing out hands very carefully by hand and putting these things in the Codex forms and then being sent out all over the world. But the scriptures, as, we then ha as they then had them, tended to be in three languages only. Okay? Greek, Hebrew, and a variation Aramaic, which is really the same, and of course Latin. And the some of the very, very earliest versions of the Bible were actually in Latin, in, in the Vulgate. Um, and then some of the texts got lost. And when you come back to the, some of the very, very early Greek uh, manuscripts which were used for the King James Version, they actually had retranslated the, the Latin back into Greek uh, to make it Greek. So, so we go, it was um, Erasmus. But anyway, we'll go there later on. But these, these, these were all in these ancient languages so that the leaders of the church, the very, very educated people, had access to the Bible through in these old languages in codex, in codex form. What happens next? Now you're all with me now. You can all see where I'm going with this, can't you now? What happens next? 1500 AD. Printing press. Printing press is invented 1500 AD. Oh, anybody can remember the date of birth of one Martin Luther? 
Well done. Yeah, two years before Bosworth. <laughs> 1483 died 1546. Oh, look at this. That's exactly the same time as the first volume printing press. Oh, what a surprise. Martin Luther, same time as a printing press. What's happened? What's happening in the world? This is the third great change which has changed civilization. You can't deny it. Without the printing press, we would not be where we were. What's happened is that, with respect, the church has become pretty bad. Let's just leave it like that. Okay? It's got all its theology wrong. It's doing not good things. Do not think in your head, oh, this was the Catholic Church. It was not. It was the church. There was only one church. And it had gone completely off the rails in many areas. The reason being, almost certainly the reason being, that the word of God, the teaching of the word of God, was not open enough for enough people to look at. Because it was all in Latin and Greek and Hebrew. And then comes along an academic movement, and it was an academic movement. It was professors like Erasmus and, and Martin Luther, and they fell into two camps. Those like Erasmus who said, we have to change this, and we're going to change it from inside the church. And those like Luther who said, no, it's too far gone. We break away, and we start again. And those who broke away were protesting, and they became known as Protestants, because they were protesting about how bad the church was. And they broke away. And Luther and his group coined a phrase, sola scriptura, which means only scripture. And we will base our Christian faith on solely scriptura, only the scriptures. Well, how do you do that if it's all in Latin and Greek? Well, we have to translate it into the mother tongues of the people in the countries. And so we have this birth um, at the same time of the, the Bible being translated into common languages. Well, it's no good having common languages stuck in one or two universities per city, which is what you have with Codex, is it? Hence the printing press. So the printing press comes along at exactly the right time and the Bible is translated into common languages and every single church can have a copy through the printing press. And this causes, of course, huge changes in theology, a huge change in belief because now the educated people in the parish can sit down and read the scriptures for themselves and they can see that salvation is by faith alone. They can read it for themselves. They don't have to go to the priest and whatever else they had to do to be saved and do this, that, and the other. Salvation was by faith and faith alone. There it is in, on your pulpit, in your printed Bible. Whether it, whichever version it was, didn't matter. The truth hasn't changed. And I think it's just wonderful that these things all happen together. That the need, the Christian need to get the gospel out there happens at the same time as we have the technological change to do it. 
Hence my sort of victorious attitude this morning, because the word of God will not be silenced. I don't care which you argue about what translation, I don't care which version, I don't care if you start showing me little tiny changes in the difference, because one word is spelt this way, one word is spelt that way, and that's largely what we're looking at. Um, there's one guy, Wallace, um, Professor Wallace, um, who is Professor of New Testament Studies in uh, Dallas, I think, um, and he... he, he takes on Erdman, this guy who's sort of having a go at everything, and he says, okay, let's pile up all the references, the Old Testament references, the, the, the New Testament references, which are controversial in the New Testament. And he says, we pile everything we've got. He says, it comes to about the height of this pulpit. And he says, let's pile up all the other manuscripts we know of, which um, actually support the rest of the Bible. Do you know how high it comes to, according to Wallace? This is on the internet. Twice the height of the Empire State Building. So it says, you're arguing about that. I'm looking at this. The word of God is going to hold. It's going to be true. We can argue about all the texts. Let's not be frightened. Let's not get caught into this idolizing the Bible that every word is this. That. No, let's look at the meaning behind it and let God speak to us through the meaning because it's been going for a long time and it's not going to change. And the printing press, there we are. We've got the printing press that comes out Exactly the time that we need it. So, what happens next? Right, okay, now we are going to upset a few people, aren't we? Um, Where are we today? Where are we today? Well, I'm going to make a statement now that you might not agree with. I think, I'm sorry to say, that the church today is in just as bad a state as it was in the 1500s. I think it's walked away from the basic Christian gospel. I think it's walked away from the basic calling that Christians have, which is to serve the world. And it's replaced itself with a cult dominated by the desires and need of man. So much prayer has been taught Books written, exercises done, movements started, become very popular, all based upon one thought. My will be done. Prayer is about changing God's will to yours. That's where the church is. And I'm sorry, that is completely contrary to God's teaching and is as far away from the gospel as the church was under Luther when he pointed out that salvation was by grace, by God's gift, not earned or paid for. Popular Christian practice has moved away from prayer which is submissive to prayer which is commanding. The big, popular, wealthy, empowering churches today, too many of them are based upon the cult of wealth. God has come to make you rich. Give 10% to God and he'll give you more back. This is so far from the gospel, it would make Luther turn over again. Yes, we should pray for healing. But there is no theology in the Bible that gives you a right to be healed. It is not there. You will all die. You will all die of something. That will be a disease. What the Bible is, what the teaching of the scripture 
asks us and empowers us to show God's grace and love through our difficulties, through our suffering. The answer to being poor is not to pray to be rich, it's to pray for grace to show God through your poverty. The answer to illness is not to pray necessarily just for healing. It is to pray that you show God's grace through your suffering. Very different gospel than what we have today. The church has moved away from that of a servant of God to one in which God is our servant. Far, I I think, to be honest, further away than the church was in the 1500s. This might offend a few people, but I'm going to say it anyway. When the mass media popularized a man baptizing by saying in the name of the Father, the Son, and Bam, and there was no objection from any of the leaders of that time, that is an apostate church that allows just blasphemy to come out. And that was what's been going on. Nobody spoke out against it. Now, I could actually forgive Todd Bentley because he was not an overeducated man. He was a man who was produced by other people. The people who are culpable is the people who did not guide him, who did not stand by him, and did not teach against such a foolish thing. And we all know what happened. This is where the church is. This is what the church has been doing. This is where it is today. What's going to happen? Where is God's answer? Where is the solution? Now, just as the society at the time of uh, Luther was becoming corrupt, so is our society today. We live in a time now where fake news is accepted as being normal. Well, I mean, with great respect to those people who have invented the concept of fake news. If you believed the newspapers before, you were probably pretty well lost, weren't you? Fake news has been around for goodness knows how long. We know we can't believe what's in the newspapers. We know we can't believe what's on the television. We've moved from a time when, in our lifetimes, many of us here, the Christian message was seen as the basic platform for morality to a time where now it is the first thing that's shot at and the first thing that everybody disagrees with. And the BBC has become one of the biggest perpetrators of removing Christianity off the planet. Where are we going with all this? What's happening? Well, nothing's new on the earth. God's been there before. God's done it before. And God knows exactly what he's going to do when he does it. It took thousands of years for writing to change the world. It took hundreds of years for the Codex to change the world. The Reformation actually happened in less than 100 years. It actually took tens of years for printing to change the world. What's going to change the world now? What is actually, while we're here, changing the world while we are here? That's having a bigger effect than writing, Codex, printing, the lot that is really shaking everything. What is it? The internet? What particularly on the internet? YouTube! <laughs> well, or ones like YouTube. It's amazing. It really is amazing what's coming out of YouTube at the moment. 
What's happening is that the um, people who control the news have lost control. They can no longer stop people putting things on the internet and people are getting followings. This is happening not only in the Christian world, but in the non-Christian world, exactly as with writing the codex and printing. The printing carried the Bible. It also carried Mein Kampf. Okay, printing is neutral. It's not good or bad. It's what it's used for. So with the internet. And if you go on the internet now, and you start putting... I'll I'll give you some names. Um, I don't really mind... What you find with these guys, you put these guys' names in the internet and you're going to be, you're going to learn something. That they, um, and they're all coming over YouTube and places like that. I had a list of them. Where have I lost it? It's all down here. Anyway, I'll give it to John. He can put it on the internet. Um, anybody know any? And you can fight a shoe. Uh, I mean, Ravi Zacharias is one. You just tap in Ravi Zacharias onto, onto YouTube. I don't care what it's his subject. He's worth listening to. John Piper, another. Um, now, there's, this is where there's a difference. John Piper, they're both about the same age, these two guys. John Piper is a Christian teacher. And he's teaching Christians. Ravi Zachariah is, uh, um, was born in India, trained in Canada, and now works in America. Been around a bit. He's about 73, 74 now. He is new. His approach is something we've not seen for a long time. And this is the word I want to give you this morning, apologetics. He is a Christian apologist. Now, the word apologetics has two meanings. Um, It can either mean to say sorry for things you've done wrong, or it can mean constituting a formal defense or justification of a theory or doctrine. It is to defend the doctrine. So men like Rabbi Zacharias are not just teaching Christians. They are deliberately putting out arguments to defend the Christian teaching from the attacks. And if you listen to them, they come across in that way. Very clear, very strong, defensive preaching of the biblical truths. And there's quite a few of them on the internet. But look them up. Completely aside, and I'm, I'm going to get into trouble if I mention this, I guess, uh, there's a guy, a guy called um, Jacob Peterson. Anybody heard of him? He's not a Christian. Although he was asked, are you a Christian? He once said he was, then he said he wasn't, then he blah, blah. But he's, he's very sympathetic towards Christian views. I would, he would not want to be called an evangelical Christian. However, he was, or is, the professor of uh, uh, psychology, I think, in Toronto University. Become very well known. And the the, the university department, a couple of years ago, told him that he must start using gender-neutral pronouns when he's teaching. And he just said, don't be stupid. No, I won't. So they tried to fire him. And they tried to sack him because he would not use gender-neutral pronouns when teaching psychology. They tried to fire him, and he started putting his lectures on YouTube. And he became popular. He then started raising so much money off YouTube, people supporting him, that he could tell the university to go whistle. And the university were unable to fire him. So he is still, as far as I know, the clinical uh, clinical, um, professor for psychology in Toronto, but he's become a worldwide movement. 
worldwide movement that is just saying it as it is. He's an apologist. He is taking um, scientific facts and presenting them as they should be presented, not bent to fix what people want them to say. And there's a whole movement following him. I, look him up. If you, it might not be an area of interest, but I find it fascinating because I'm still involved in that sort of world. But people like him are coming out onto YouTube. So what's happening? I think this is of God. I think the internet is of God. I think YouTube is of God. And I think these people are in a position at the right time. And we're now having a whole wealth of apologetic preachers coming up onto the internet. Some of you uh, know David Wood. David Wood is the bad boy. He's, he's um, incredibly amusing. Um, but what we've had... We've had all this Islamic preaching, Islamic preaching. And how does the West respond to Islamic preaching? Well, the answer is not to bomb Iraq. I can tell you that for a fact. Um, the answer is to confront the Islamic teaching. And now you've got people coming up now making a career of doing nothing else but confronting Islamic teaching from a Christian perspective. And their lives are at risk. And they know that, but they're doing it on the internet. And it's having a huge effect because now some of these Islamic um, preachers are trying to interact and answer people like David Wood and not doing very well. And David Wood is coming out. He's become a movement of himself. He's, he's a bit of a bad boy. Um, he'd have to be to do what he's doing. And his, his background is fascinating. Um, he actually, I think he, he had a criminal record, went to prison, and he's now got a PhD um, in, in textual analysis, and he's genius. Just, just, it's great fun. It's all coming through the internet. Let me come back to where I started. Nothing is new on the earth. It's all been done before. God gave us writing when he needed writing. God gave us the codex when we needed the codex. God gave us the printing press when we needed the printing press. And God's given us YouTube when we need YouTube. So, when you go off on your holiday, take the word of God with you. But take it with some proper teaching. Find some apologetic preachers. Some good ones. Look up an organization like www.bible.org, which is an apologetic um, biblical approach, who are not frightened of looking at the reality of where the Bible came from, who will go into which text is this and which text is that, who will tell you, quite honestly, the Bible you have at the back there, yes, I believe the message in it is reliable, but that Bible at the back there, whichever one you pick out, is somebody else's um, editor has decided what you will have. There is no such thing as a Bible. And if you're ultra-conservative Get over it. There isn't such thing as a Bible. Hardly any denomination agrees amongst the other denomination what the Bible is. Luther wanted to take James out of the Bible, for goodness sake. The Catholics have got one thing, Anglicans another, the Protestants another. But the truth that it preaches has not changed. That's the background for this message. Now we'll have the message. The message is at the end of Ecclesiastes. The last part of Ecclesiastes says this about the preacher who wrote it himself. He's talking about himself. Besides being wise, obviously very humble, the guy that wrote this, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. 
So there is a, a use for knowledge. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So there's a place for art. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. The words of the wise are like goads. Sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes the truth is difficult. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making books there is no end and of much study is weariness of flesh. The end of the matter has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's all God asks us to do. There's a wonderful verse in first chapter of Romans, verse 20, which says that the God can be seen in nature. So they're without excuse. True science reveals God. They are without excuse. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's the true nature. That's what we take on holiday with us. Yes, take the Bible. You need to take a Bible. You need to read it. You need to understand what it is. You need to read it carefully. Get, some, get fed with some good apologetic teaching from someone who's not trying to please everybody else, but just say what is there. Read what it says. That's what we should be taking on holiday. I'm going to close with a little testimony. That's uh, I was playing with a child, six-year-old child, just a couple of days ago. And children, you know, they, they don't always concentrate much. They're all up and down. This one was hanging upside down at the time, I think, um, but was talking to me. And then came out with a few things and then came out with a statement that I was just quite surprised by. Um, it was this, an insight into God and who we are. I won't go any further what it was, but he, he came out with this statement. Uh, I said to him, How did you, where did you get that from? Who talked to you that? Where, where did you get that from? And he said, oh, I was in the car and I thought of it. I said, you didn't think of that. And he said, oh, I did, because it's true. I said, no, you did not think of that. I said, God whispered that in your ear. It's the only way you're going to know that. That's what we should take on holiday with us when we look at the scripture. It's the ability to hear God whispering in our ear through the teaching of the word of God that we can have confidence in and not be misled by the ultra-liberals who will go one way, the ultra-conservatives who will do something else with it, it stood the test of time, and God, I believe, has sent us the internet and YouTube to protect it and to carry on proclaiming the truth in that word. And you can rely upon that truth until Jesus comes back. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the way that you speak to us, that you open our ears and you talk to us, each one of us, in our own way, in our own time, in our own method, because you are a personal God who, is who comes to each one of us personally. Please, Father, I ask that you would 
Give us a great love for your word. Give us a love for all the, the controversies and difficulties around it because it just shows that you are greater. You do not need defending, Lord. Help us to trust in your hand and show us yourself through both the creation around us and through the word of God that you've given us. Help us to love it. Help us to understand it. Give us strength and confidence, Lord, to stand up and defend it. Amen.